I didn't want to miss an opportunity before I start to just say a huge thank you. Um, thank you for being a church that affirms women in ministry, that affirms my call to be a pastor. Um, I'm just so thankful for that. So thank you for being a church that allows me to be up here and preach. Um, that's, an, that's an honor, and I'm going to start crying before I preach, so I'm going to stop talking. But I want to take a quick poll, a quick little confession moment from all of you, um, and be honest. How many of you are chronic, I've lost something, but it's right in front of my face kind of people? Yeah, yeah. How many of you are not those kind of people? How many of you never, you're a liar. You're a liar. You lie. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I'm like frantically looking around my house yelling at my dog because that's the only other person that lives in my house, but it's a dog. Um, or anybody else who's present, where are my keys or my phone or whatever? Only to find a few minutes later that they're safely tucked in my pocket. Or worse, they're just in my hands and I'm running around with them asking where they are. Um, like, like I said, if you've never done this, you're a liar. We've, we've all done this. We've all done this. Or in today's culture, especially, many of us have smartphones, right? And if those go missing, oh no. That's literally the end of the world. Literally the end of the world. I cannot repeat, cannot leave the house until I have my phone. I just have too many people to call and text, and too many people have to call and text me. I mean, not that many people. I'm not that popular. But I wish I could say I was joking about that, but I'm just as attached to my phone as the next person. Sad, but true. Anyway. In our text from today, in Matthew chapter 17, just so you know, I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Um, this text, as Adriana shared with us and the kids, is often referred to as the transfiguration text. And we get a bit of one of those, I've lost something, but it's right in front of my face moments in this text. Over the last several weeks, we've been in the season of Epiphany. Maybe you've heard of it. We've been going through the Gospels of, of Luke and Matthew, experiencing stories that reveal who Jesus is, that give us epiphany um, of who Jesus is. Namely, a teacher, as we've gone through the Beatitudes the last several weeks and learned what it means to be salt and light, to reconcile with our brothers and sisters, and to be a holy people. And one fascinating thing about this year's lectionary rhythm is that it skips a whole bunch of the Gospel of Matthew, 12 chapters to be in fact, um, in order for us to get to the transfiguration text in time. Some years it lines up well so the transfiguration text lands where it needs to, um, but we had to skip 12 chapters to get to today, the transfiguration text, because today is Transfiguration Sunday in the church year. Um, but a lot of things happen in those 12 chapters, including just more stories revealing who Jesus is and more of Jesus' teachings. For example, in chapter 8, Jesus heals a man with a skin disease. He does a lot of healing. There's a lot of healing in the Gospel of Matthew. He heals a centurion servant and many more people. He also calms a storm in that chapter. That's pretty cool. In chapter 10, he calls the disciples to heal the sick, to do the same things he's doing, to raise the dead, to cleanse those who are unclean, and cast out demons. In chapter 14, we learn, sadly, that John the Baptist was killed. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just two loaves of five loaves of bread and two fish. Not to mention, like, he walks on water. That's a pretty big deal, right? Why are we skipping these stories? But not to worry, though we are jumping forward to chapter 17 today on Transfiguration Sunday, um, we'll get to hear more stories from Matthew in the weeks to come. And we get to kind of go back and look at some of those stories. I can't help but to think, however, that this jump is somewhat intentional in our church rhythm this year and for us as a church body. And not just because it's Transfiguration Sunday, 
And you'll learn why I think that is in just a bit. But I want to get to our text for today. Again, it's Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And if you are willing and able, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of the gospel today? Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. You may be seated. So you're probably wondering, like I did all week as I was studying this passage and figuring out what I wanted to talk on, why does Matthew give us a specific amount of days? Why, why does he say six days later? What happened six days prior to this story um, that Matthew needs us to look at? Was it somebody's birthday or anniversary that I missed? Did I forget about an appointment? Because I'm always concerned about that. What was six days earlier that Matthew wants us to look at? And this is where context is helpful. If we take a look back just one chapter, six days prior to this moment on the mountain, we find a very important part of the story in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asks the disciples this important question, who am I? And then he turns to Peter and he gets even more specific. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ding, ding, ding. Peter gets it right for once. If you know Peter, and I'm sorry, I have to smack talk Peter, you know he's not the sharpest tool in the shed sometimes. In fact, if you keep reading in this same chapter, Peter follows up by saying the wrong thing at the wrong time with the best intentions, but he gets rebuked by Jesus. We all know this story. Jesus shares with them that he has to die as the Messiah. And Peter says, no, no, that's not what messiahs do. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It was a rough day for Peter that day. He understood one very important fact, though. He got it right that Jesus is the Christ, son of the living God. And that's huge. But when Jesus brought this news to the disciples that he would have to die, it just didn't compute. They didn't get it. I mean, Jesus even added, to make it even harder... Um, that anybody who wants to follow him would have to take up their own crosses and potentially suffer on his behalf. They would have to lose their life in order to find true life. And Peter simply didn't understand. I don't blame him. I would have been in his shoes. The important thing that we recognize about these six days, however, is that Peter and the other disciples were most likely in a state of confusion, probably some chaos as they continued in ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, carrying the weight of this news that their mentor and their teacher would have to die. So here we are, six days later, on a mountain. 
We're going to get back to Peter in just a little bit. But like I said before, today is Transfiguration Sunday. As Adriana beautifully said, it's, it means transformation. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But it's also the end of Epiphany, where this is the last day of Epiphany. And really, it's the climax of Jesus' story. I mean, it's on a mountain, no less, a literal peak. Um, something we should know about God is that God has a thing for showing up on mountains. And uh, we get a lot of that in the Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 19, just one instance of many that Jesus shows up on a mountain, we read of Moses and the Israelites meeting God at Mount Sinai. And in that instance, there was fire and lightning as God appeared. Pretty, pretty dramatic. They couldn't even lay eyes on the cloud or they would be killed because the glory was too much. Five chapters later, in chapter 24, Moses, Aaron, and 70 other elders meet with God on a mountain, and a dark cloud, which represents the presence of God, settled there for, guess how many days? Six. <laughs> six just so happens to be a very significant number in scripture. So whenever you see the number six, kind of like when you see the number seven, um, it's very significant, so pay attention. But six, uh, he settled there for six days. And then on, in verse 17 of chapter 24 in Exodus, it says this, The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So while they couldn't look at God directly, God offered them a devouring fire instead. Good, good substitution, I guess. Um, what they saw was fire and dark clouds. Kind of freaky. We could keep, I could keep naming the vast number of, of times that Jesus showed up on the mountain because he did it a lot, um, but I think you get the picture. Jesus, or God, liked mountains, and so did Jesus. Um, maybe that's why I thought about like when the teens go to camp and retreats, that's why we go to the mountains because we experience God in a special way there. But I wondered this week as I was reading this passage, why does Exodus and other passages in the Old Testament get all of these like cool effects like fire and lightning and dark clouds? Like Matthew obviously isn't concerned with dramatic effect, except for Jesus' wardrobe choice. Why don't we have fire and lightning and dark clouds in this mountaintop story? And as I was kind of studying and praying, I kind of heard the voice of God say, isn't the answer obvious? On this mountain, in our story today, in the presence of the disciples who were there, God's glory is revealed in something far greater and far more valuable than fire and lightning. Far greater and far more glorious than dark clouds. God's glory is revealed in the very person of Jesus Christ. The Messiah, whose face shone like the sun and whose clothes became dazzling white. I'd say that's pretty dramatic in the most beautiful and magnificent way. No longer does God need to use lightning and fire and dark clouds to get our attention, because what our attention should be on is the glory of the beloved Son, the Messiah, God incarnate, God with us. Jesus is now and has always been the appearance of the glory of the Lord. And we no longer need to turn our eyes away because Jesus' glory is entangled beautifully with humanity so that we might set our eyes on the glory of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Yes. In fact, I'm sort of glad God doesn't show up like a devouring fire anymore. That might get a little freaky. Instead, we get the glorious yet tangible person of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law 
and the prophets. And this is where Moses and Elijah come into the story. Moses equals law, and Elijah equals prophets. A little lesson there. What does it mean, though, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? Last week, Trent reminded us of this idea that we should look at fulfillment as Jesus filling full the law and the prophets. In other words, it's in the person of Jesus that we get the fullest, most complete picture of the law. Remember that earlier in the gospel, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus reminds us that he didn't come to get rid of the law. That's not what he was doing. He came to make it full, to make it alive and practical for us. That passage in the message version of scripture says it so beautifully. Let me read it for you. It says, don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. So why do Moses and Elijah show up on the mountain? Why did they have to be there? I could tell you my answer, but it would be better for us, I think, to continue looking at the story, and maybe we'll get a different answer if you hang in there for me for a little bit longer. Because I don't have the answer. I just have an answer. But like I said, let's get back to Peter and James and John for a moment. I want to focus on them for a little bit. So I'm going to ask you guys to do something. I want you to close your eyes with me for a minute. And I want you to imagine that you are one of the disciples that got to go with Jesus to the mountain. Some of you aren't closing your eyes. It's a beautiful day. The birds are chirping and the sun is shining. And Jesus tells you to follow him to the top of a mountain. You're walking along and you don't like, maybe you don't like hiking. But this is a hike with Jesus we're talking about. You probably feel pretty special. Little did you know that you were going to get to see some special guests on this hike. That's pretty neat. You are one of the chosen disciples to experience this moment with your mentor and teacher. Now open your eyes. Stop thinking you're special. (laughs) I hate to ruin the moment, but boosting the egos of the disciples was not Jesus' intention for bringing them to the mountain. In fact, it may have been quite the opposite. Now, like I said, I hate to smack talk Peter, but we just have so much to learn from him, so much. Like I said before, Peter has had a rough go. Just six days later was probably the hardest day of his life when when Jesus rebuked him. He has the best intentions, but those aren't always translated well into his actions, right? In this story in particular, Peter decides to run his mouth in typical Peter fashion, I mean, just imagine you're watching the scene like you're watching a movie. Jesus is having most likely a significant conversation with Moses and Elijah. I mean, they're people that came from the dead to show up for this conversation, probably about what is to come in the days in the days ahead. And and Peter raises his hand. He's like, um, Lord, hey, it's really cool that we're here. Uh, Why don't I pitch some tents for us to uh, so we can stay here for a bit? Does that sound good? Like, he interrupts Jesus and Moses and Elijah to ask if he can pitch some tents. Oh, Peter. Here we see Peter trying to do the right thing in the moment, but still not getting it. I can't say I haven't done the same thing. However, 
I mean, how often when we are in conversations with people or in certain situations that might be uncomfortable for us, do we say or do something impulsive in the moment to appease our own agenda or our own ego? <laughs> I see some of you shaking your head. Never. We don't do that. Or like when it's kind of silent in the room, are any of you those people that try to fill the silence and you're just trying to like say random stuff? Small talk kind of people. Yeah, it's all right, dude. I'm definitely guilty of doing this. So I'm not so much calling Peter out as I am myself and maybe us, if, if you guys will confess with me. We could end the sermon here. I could just tell you to go and try not to be like Peter. That would be an okay sermon, maybe. But we haven't reached the best part of the story yet. So let's continue. The next part says, while Peter was still running his mouth, my translation, Suddenly, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. Peter's agenda was shut down. I imagine like a dog that's been reprimanded. I know when my dog gets in trouble, her tail goes between her legs and her ears go down, and she walks away really slowly and gets in her kennel. I imagine that's a little bit of how Peter felt in that moment. But there's an important truth here. It wasn't fear that God wanted to instill in the disciples in this moment. That was simply their impulse reaction to the voice of God. It wasn't fear God intended to instill in them. What God intended for the disciples in this moment was for them to see the fullest vision of Jesus, the most whole and perfect revelation and reflection of God who is loving, compassionate, utterly magnificent, and entirely humble. This is one of those, I've lost something, but it's right in front of my face moments. God wanted the disciples to see Jesus, just Jesus. Sometimes we get so caught up in other things, in our schedules, in our jobs, in our relationships. Sometimes those are the only things we see when we look up. I'm guilty of this, getting so caught up in those things that I forget to see Jesus in the midst of all of it. What do you see when you look up? God is asking us to put some of those things aside and to see his glory in the person of Jesus. We often read the line, listen to him, from this text, just as I've said it, with the inflection on the word listen. But I wonder what the difference it would make if we put the emphasis on the him instead of listen. Listen to him. Quit listening to your own agenda, your own ego. Stop listening to what you think the law and the prophets mean for you. It's great that Moses and Elijah showed up, but the only voice that matters here in this moment is the voice of Jesus. His is the voice that is going to sustain you in the days to come. It is only the voice of Jesus, which is the very voice of God, that will hold you up when you are tested and when you are suffering. Listen to him. This is why I think it's significant. I told you guys I would, told, I would tell you this. This is why I think it's significant that we jumped 12 chapters to get to our story today to remind us that we can focus on miracles and healing and magnificent signs that, the, that Jesus and the disciples did. Those are all great things, and we should focus on those in their time. But it, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, the only one we need to see is Jesus. And the next part of the story is my favorite. 
Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be afraid. And listen closely to this next part. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. One version says it this way. When the disciples heard the voice of God, they fell flat on their faces, scared to death. And I would add scared of death. But Jesus came over and touched them. Don't be afraid. When they opened their eyes and looked around, all they saw was Jesus. Only Jesus. We could easily interpret that text as saying that when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were just gone. It was just Jesus standing there. But that's not what the text says. What does it say? They saw no one except Jesus himself alone. This is the epiphany we have been journeying to over the last several weeks. The aha moment is not when Jesus' face is glowing. It's not when he's talking to Moses or Elijah, nor when, he, nor when the voice comes from the cloud. The aha moment for the disciples in this story, and for us today, I would argue, is that when we look up from our busy schedules, from our egos, even more from our fears and from our sin, it's only Jesus that we see. And this isn't even the most important aha moment. We're not to this part of the story yet, but it will all make sense and fall together for those in the story and for us when Jesus overcomes death and is resurrected from the dead. Only then will we say with Peter, oh, I get it now. And this is why I believe Jesus told them, don't tell anybody about what you saw until after I've been raised from the dead. They just, they wouldn't get it because there is still suffering that had to happen. We have a journey to go on first, church. This Wednesday begins our journey through the season of Lent. This is a season in which we face our sin. We face brokenness. We face our own darkness that put Jesus on the cross. On this journey through the valley, lest we look down and forget who we are, we need only to look up. To remember this experience of God on the mountain, to see Jesus, the full, complete, entire revelation of God, who forgives sin, who heals brokenness, who shines in the darkness, and who, by the literal touch of his hand, dispels all fear. The Transfiguration text offers us hope on this journey of darkness, church, on which we are about to embark. The Transfiguration offers, as one commentator wrote that I read this week, it offers the paradox that while there is nothing the disciples or we can do to save themselves from suffering, there is also no way they can shield themselves from the light of God that sheds hope in their darkest moments. The glory of God in the person of Jesus meets us where we are. And that is why we participate in the sacrament of the Eucharist, communion, a meal that is simply bread and juice, very ordinary things, but things that reveal the glory of God in Christ. I'm going to ask those who are going to serve and the praise team to come up and prepare the elements. And as they do that, I want to remind you that we practice an open table. What that means is that anyone who is in need of the grace of God today is invited to this table, invited to look up and see only Jesus. Just so you know, all bread is gluten-free in case that's a concern for you. 
But as we prepare to receive today, I wanted to read something that I came across this week by a theologian named Patrick Wilson. It ties together our text for today with the practice of communion. And this is what he writes. Some would say that God is much too much to be contained within the walls of the church. Of course they are right. Some would remind us that God is so great that neither the earth below nor the heavens above can hold God. Certainly we must agree with them. God is certainly so great that God can never be contained in something as small as a crumb of bread or a sip of wine. We nod our heads, yes. But we must hasten to add, furthermore, God is so great, so majestic, so glorious, that God deigns come to us in a, a crumb of bread and a sip of wine, just as much of God as a hand can hold. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had blessed it he, and given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, would you bless this bread and this wine? As we partake, God, would you make us what we eat the body and blood of Jesus in our world. Thank you for your glory revealed in the person of Jesus. Amen. Come as you are ready. Would you stand and receive the benediction as we prepare to go from this place? Would you be reminded this week to look up from your busy schedules, from your jobs, from your friends and relationships and family issues, would you be reminded to look up and see Jesus, only Jesus. Go in peace. Amen.